All right. So review time first. We're going to start with a little bit of a review. Um, Kay had asked us this evening in our homework to kind of go back and just to remember where we've come from and where we're at. And in particular, just to kind of see the bigger picture of Corinthians on the whole, but specifically to really understand the segment division that we're in right now. So what we know is chapters one through four were all about divisions. And these divisions were ca uh, caused by boasting in men. What do you remember about chapter one specifically? What was the major message in chapter one? You might just want to look at your at-a-glance chart, or you can just open your observation worksheets and look at your titles that you've filled in, and we'll just follow that way. I don't need a lot of detail, but what I want to do is stir up your mind to kind of put the pieces back in your in your thinking this morning, okay? It's real helpful to review, 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 okay? It's one of the advantages of inductive study. You get to do that so much. Okay, so tell me what you saw in chapter one. What was his message about them having divisions? Right. So they were following men, which was the problem, right? And so what was his solution? There you go. To boast in the Lord. That the, that they were not of they were not baptized into Paul, were they? And the answer is no. I love those rhetorical questions that Paul always pops out there with, you know. The obvious answer is a no or a yes. Uh, and in this case, it's a no. Of course, they were not baptized into Paul. And so Paul says, no, you are to boast in the Lord because who is it that called them? Who called them into this fellowship? Who called them into their faith walk? The Lord did, right? Even though they were vessels of human uh, nature, God himself is the one who does the calling. I think that there's kind of a, an additional little subject to or topic of subject that you could uh, follow on that, another little rabbit trail if you wanted to, about the idea that uh, all callings, everyone who comes into faith are th those who are called and prompted by the Holy Spirit. Okay, chapter two concerning divisions, what? Okay, you guys have got to stand up and do some jumping jacks or something. Get your brains going. What is chapter, just tell me the title on your sheet. There you go. Now, why was the subject of the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God something that Paul brought up to this particular audience? Those are things that they were looking at, right? And how, yes, okay, and there you go. Greece was just notorious. This was their thing. You know, they loved men who had the ability to be eloquent and, and graceful in speech and to have all these, you know. I can tell you, I've been in circles of academia that that is so true, that if you can, the bigger the words you can have and the more you can impress people with your eloquence, the better they receive you. But what do we know about Paul having kind of looked at him at this point on that subject? Was he eloquent? Was he, was he graceful in speech? Was he pleasant to even look at? <laughs> no. And so here he is. This, he is actually the epitome of the one whom God says, I call uh, the, 
the um, the weak to shame. Yes, the foolish things of the world. Thank you to to shame the wise. He is the opposite of whom God should have called, and yet He did call. But yet Paul had a great deal to offer in who he was, although he wasn't eloquent of speech, and although he wasn't necessarily pleasant to look at. What did he have? Um, he had the spirit of God. He had the mind of Christ. Good answer, Sarah. Nice job. Because uh, that's what it really comes down to is, do you have the mind of Christ? And in his case, he also had a lot of, I, a lot of training. I mean, he had a great deal of instruction that God prepared him for the place he, that he put him within the body of Christ. As we approach the subject here uh, coming up in a week or two, or, or probably a couple of weeks, on spiritual gifting. This is significant to keep in mind. I, I cannot tell you how many times I have conversations with people and I ask them, what is your spiritual gifting? They have no clue. It is absolutely essential that the body of Christ come to at least have a glimmer of an idea of what it is that God has gifted them to do. How can you do that which you don't know you're gifted and called to do. You have to research, you have to look for it, you have to in, in, intently, you know, focus on that particular subject in order to come to an insight on it, and it's important. Um, so Paul had his calling. He says, rather than putting your, your faith on the wisdom of men, which is what they were doing, and they were following Paul and Apollos and, and all these others, he said, no, he said, let your wisdom uh, your faith rests on the wisdom and power of God. Okay, chapter 3 now is what? Yes, there was, again, yet divisions in the church. And why were there divisions in chapter 3? What was his major message about the problem? What was their real problem in chapter 3? Yes. They were infants in Christ. Now, what makes us be an infant? Well, I mean, obviously they're not babies, right? What does he mean by they're infants? Yeah. Yes. So what causes a Christian who, obviously he has an expectation that they actually should be more mature than they are, right? Do you remember Hebrews addresses that same problem too? We did Hebrews not too many years ago, where we saw the same thing in Hebrews where he said to them, by now you ought to be what? Do you remember? You ought to be teachers, but instead you're having to receive the milk of the word, right? Because you're still infants. So if you, you guys right here, if you do not want to remain infants, what is the solution? what you're doing. Yeah, here it is. It's being in the Word of God and studying in a, in a disciplined way. Um, you know, there, there's a variety of studies that are out there, and there are a lot of good ways to bring in the Word of God. And sometimes it's really also, for me also, it's very beneficial. Often I like to turn on my uh, YouTube uh, audios, and I listen to our videos, and listen to sermons on different things, because it's a way of bringing it in. But there is nothing better than really buckling down and doing the inductive work, the study that you do for yourself, because it's so different, in my opinion, for someone to tell you an answer than it is for you to dig it out for yourself. If you're digging it out for yourself, you remember it better. And also, you're more convinced of it when, you're, when it's all done.
So he says, therefore, because you're infants, what does he not want them to do? They are infants, and they're walking as infants. They're walking as mere men. But what is he reminding them in chapter 3? There you go. You belong to God. You are not mere men. And by that statement of you belong to God, what is he really telling them? Yeah. (laughs) Walk as if you do, right? You know, um, I was having, I've been having conversations ongoing with my son for years and years, and he's not in faith. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about, I said, is, you know, what's, what's, amazing about our Christian faith is when you come into faith, that's all God's work. His justification, his, the sanctifying work of God in, in you is all his work. You don't have to do a thing for it. But once you're in, there is an expectation for how you're going to walk, which requires on your part some discipline, which God therefore will give you the ability to walk there in it, right? So, it's this very healthy balance, I think, in relationship. A relationship is not one-sided. Did you know that? If you want to have a relationship with your spouse, how does it go if only one of you is talking and the other one is a brick wall? Does that go so well? Not so well, right? There has to be interaction on both sides. And so this is what I think the principle of Christian faith is about here. He says, don't walk as mere men. You belong to God. Walk out what you, what you truly are. If you are in Christ, you need to live your life in such a manner. Okay, now he says then in chapter 4, leading off of that, it's a very nice natural flow in the conversation. He goes in chapter 4, and what does he tell them? Okay, we are stewards of, okay, we're stewards of the mysteries of God, and... Don't become arrogant in Okay. Yeah. Right. And comparing themselves to one another, right? As a matter of fact, however, although they were comparing themselves to one another, there's an interesting little uh, nuance in this, and that is, what is Paul doing in chapter 4 concerning himself? What does he say in verse 16? Yes, isn't that interesting? Although he says, I don't want you to walk as mere men, and I don't want you to boast in men, what I do want you to do, however, is is imitate me. Why? Because my ways are in Christ, right? In 416, he says, be imitators of my ways, which are in Christ. So as I follow Christ, you follow me. So the real reality, he could have simply said, just follow Christ. But he's saying, follow me. I'm the physical manifestation for you to observe. I am following Christ. I'm confident in my, uh, in my own walk, and I want you to pattern yourself after me because the things which I am doing qualify for, for uh, as an example for others to imitate. Okay, so that's chapters one through four, and that's all about divisions and how to, how to um, diminish those and how to set those things right in a church. How dangerous are divisions in a church? 
what kind of damage do you think these kinds of divisions that he's speaking about, how, how damaging can they be? Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, that's a good point to bring up. The idea that Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and you are in me, and, you know, that, that, that John, and he's talking about that unity that's supposed to be there. And if we are in Christ, and, he, and he's just said that to um, the audience in chapter 3, you belong to God. You all belong to God. Therefore, you are actually one body. And he's going to repeat that again in chapter 12 when he talks about the gifting of, of the church, how they're one body, and yet there's diversity of giftings. So, okay, so um, unity can cause problem, and unity can, or division can cause problems, and division can also, as um, Martha said, take our eyes off of Jesus and put them onto the people and the, the, the frailties of people and the sins of people. And what you, what you actually do then in the end is hurt the ministry of the church, the work of God in the city that you're in or in the community that you're in. Because people are looking at you and looking at how you can't get along and they're thinking, well, if that's the way Christians are, why, you know, why do I want to be a part of that? That's a big mess, right? All right, very good. So in many regards, we're going to see this kind of a message over and over in almost all of these, and that is that there's an overriding message that says to us that we are, uh, we need to be aware of how the world is perceiving us, how we're being saved, how what we are doing, how we are living things out are affecting the ministry in the church as well. How is it affecting the lives of other people who maybe will come into faith or maybe they won't, but what kind of effect is your ministry having by the divisions, right? All right, now the next segment is five and six, and th this had to do with that major key word about judging, right? Re in chapter five, how are we to judge? And who is to do the judging in this, by the way? So let's start in five with what we're to judge. Okay, and what is the old leaven? What is that representative of? Leaven is obviously a, ri a rising yeast for bread, right? So, but what is it used pictorially to represent for us? Sin. Okay, so if you're to remove the leaven in the context of chapter five, who was the example of the leaven? this immoral man. Specifically, he puts one guy out there. He gives one that's a quite overt problem, right? Um, now, I cannot say that always we will have such overtness, but would you say on the whole that although we may not, in, you know, in our personal lives have ever known a man having his, mother, his father's wife, but are there other kinds of overt immoralities that we know are taking place in the church? And how are we doing on that? Not so good. And do you know why? Why are you not so good? Who do you think did that? Yeah, but who, who do you... Th 
Who's the one that? <laughs> right, exactly. The, the deceiver, the liar, the one who likes to take, make good evil and evil good, right? So the, he turns everything upside down on his head, and we'll just name him Satan, right? He loves to do that. And not only just Satan, but also, quote, the world. Uh, you, know, you know, we don't want to give him all the credit for all the bad things, because we can certainly do some bad things all by ourselves, right? I, I, I kind of have always laughed about the, the, um, the old saying, the devil made me do it, right? But think about this. During the millennial reign, there's going to be a thousand years, and who's going to be bound for a thousand years? Satan. Satan. But what's going to happen at the end of the thousand-year reign? We are still going to have people that arrive, who, who come up against God, which just blows me away. Even though Christ will be here ruling and reigning right before their eyes, and yet they'll still reject him. So are we capable of sitting aside of Satan? We don't really have to have Satan, so we don't need to give him full credit. We can certainly take some credit of our own. But as Christians, then what is our responsibility in chapter 5 concerning immoralities? That's right. And it's very interesting how he goes on. He says, from, a, from amongst you or from your midst. Meaning, this is not immorality out in the world, right? This is immorality that's taking place where? In the church. By people who therefore are what? They're claiming that they are Christians. Now, whether they are or whether they aren't, we don't know. We are not God. We cannot perceive the heart. But what we do do in light of how we are to respond to people like this is we take them at their word. They're in the church. They're claiming to be Christian. Then you treat them as a Christian. And you hold their feet to the fire. And you say, in Christ, you're bearing his name. You must walk in such a way. And if you are going to live in this kind of overt immorality where the church is being maligned because of your behavior and because you are defiling the holy name of God, you must be removed and either repent of it now or be removed. That's your choice, right? The church has not been doing that for many, many years, and it needs to get back to that. Um, okay, so that's in chapter 5. The first one is remove the immoral man from amongst you, from within the church. Get, cast him out. The hopes in that, although we didn't really address it and he doesn't address it here, what is the hopes uh, by doing that kind of a removing? Yeah. The real hope is that he would repent. And mm-hmm. Yeah. It absolutely would. And there you go. There's another nice little rabbit trail. And it's a whole subject study in and of itself. This is where the inductive part of Bible study can be limitless. But it is a great subject. And if you have specific issues going on in the church, this is a good place to start and then build from there. Uh, the, the bottom line is there is absolutely no question in God's agenda. They must be removed, Right. That is the, that is the, yeah, if they're in the church and they're committing over, because that's what it says, remove them from your midst. Right. Because if they're outside the church, they're not claiming to be a Christian anyway, right? And they don't know any better. They're blinded still. Excellent. Yes. Good points. Okay, so now, so, because this is why I specifically on my title, instead of just saying duty to judge, I put the believer's duty to judge. Because we are speaking about, within the church itself, people who have affixed themselves 
to a congregation. And by the way, this holds true through this whole uh, book. When Paul is addressing these different issues and these problems, he's addressing it congregationally. It has personal application. And, but because it's congregational, sometimes that person may or may not even be a Christian. It's an unknown. So his addressing and some of his statements are open-ended so that just like Hebrews did to us, well, if you're saved, then this, and if you're not saved, then this, right? So that's something that you have to have discerning ability to kind of finesse as you're reading through some of these statements and say, well, what's true if I'm a believer? This. But what's true if I'm not a believer? Well, then this. But Either way, if you're claiming to be a Christian and you're affixed to the church and you're living in this kind of overt uh, immorality, the responsibility of the church is to what? Remove it from your midst, right? Sometimes that requires a process and some steps and there's all those in scripture. Okay, so then what about chapter 6? Concerning the believer's duty there. Okay. Very good. Now, why do you think that's the kind of wisdom that he brings up in this point? Do you remember what we kind of looked at with Roman law earlier? We, we kind of did a little spiel on the Roman law and all the variations that they have. We did it in regards to slaves and who gets freed and so forth. But... Roman law was really um, intricate, and it was all about the good of Rome. You know, their laws were for the good of Rome up on this higher level. Um, yeah, make ready. There you go. Yeah, go, Robert. <laughs> okay, so now in this chapter 6, who, does, who is it that is supposed to do this judging, just to make this clear? The believers are, right. So this is a believer. So if a believer is going to a court of law outside of the, outside of the church to have uh, issues resolved, what Paul is saying to them is, no, you must, you must try to make those uh, agreements from within your, the privacy of the, of the church itself. Let your fellow brethren. And then what is his validation for that? What does he express to us in here? Why do we have that kind of authority? And why do we have the ability to do that? I know, isn't that amazing? Yeah, well, you know, well, but Pat, uh, truly, I, a lot of this is about the ability also. It isn't so much the judging as it is the standing as a witness to it. That's right. The, the ultimate law. Yes. That's right. Absolutely. And that is absolutely, that is it. I remember um, in Matthew when uh, Peter gives his confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, human flesh did not reveal this to you. It was 
my father who is in heaven. And I believe in our judgment, that's it. And, and he says, I'm going to give you the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, and you are going to loose and bind by, based on the authority of what's written and established in heaven already. So based on what God's already established as law, that's the premise by which we judge. So Pat, we don't have to do it of ourselves. What we have to do is know what is God's will and be like what Jesus says, the Father and I, I do nothing but what the Father tells me to do. And I speak nothing but what the Father tells me to speak, right? I do nothing but what the Father tells me to do. That's what the Christian will do in that regard to ruling. And so when, when the angels are judged, it's going to be more a matter of us being in agreement with what God's already established in the heavens. So it's really not us. It's just that we're going to be his vessel. And we will rule and reign on this earth, but we will do it with that. And what's really cool is at that point, what is it that you and I will have as an advantage? Where are we in the timeline concerning the physical body? When this judging will occur and so forth. When we come back to rule and reign on earth, what will we already have? We'll already have our glorified bodies, a renewed mind. We'll have been in the presence of Jesus and see truth in its fullness. <laughs> right now it says we see through a dim mirror, but then we shall see face to face. So once we get the face to face, and once we get the renewed body, which, re which releases us from the, the temptations of the flesh, once we get the fullness of the mind of Christ in that way, through, through that uh, uh, new body and new mind that we get, then we have the ability. So you don't have to fear it. Oh, good. <laughs> You're yeah, I know. Just send someone else, God. Yeah, no, that's all right. Do you remember that verse that says, here I am, Lord, send me? That's supposed to be our mantra. Okay. All right. So the righteous, therefore, are to judge. In, when it comes to judging the believers, number one, remove the immoral brother. Number two, the righteous are to judge matters of this life. That is our calling. And we are not to forget that. And if we are not doing that, we need to step up to the plate and be doing it. The only way we are able to is if we are renewing our mind with God's word so that we know truth. Okay, so that's, that's our second division. Then our last division, which we came out of, was about marriage and singleness. On the whole, what would you say you learned about marriage and singleness? What did you see was going on in that chapter as far as the back and forth? It's like, well, you can do this, but... I think it's kind of like misinterpreting scripture that is out there that people use consistently um, on marriage and that. But really it's about Paul basically setting forth God, what it was already established, and then offering some opinions. Yes. And it's very interesting when he offers, quote, opinions. Is it just his human opinion or what is it? What is that opinion based on yeah one of the things he says is I wish that you were all as I am and how was he single and un unattached right why did he feel like that was the best place to be better focus on God better focus on ministry better able to be freed and untethered and without worries of the world right but if you're married you are tethered a little bit because there are there are things however is that a bad thing? No. no. 
It's not. As a matter of fact, there are many, many verses that says that it is not good for man to be alone. When God created Adam, he did not leave him alone in the garden. He, on, right from God's beginning, it was, it was planned that there would be a helpmate, right? How, how else would there be procreation and filling up of the earth if there was only a man? So God had always had in, in plan in mind, which was the marriage between two. Um, so it's a good thing. And so in the end, what does Paul say then about marriage? If you're going to make a decision, do I marry? Don't I marry? You know, what is the one thing that really holds this whole message together for us? That is right. You are to make sure that you are keeping God's commandments and glorifying God with your body. He keeps going back to if you're tempted, if there's passions, then you marry. If you can't keep your passions under control, then you marry. And if you're, if you're able and you feel the calling of God, if that's your place, then don't. Right? Um, he also kind of put it underneath the umbrella for us of an urgency. What was his urgent thought about the times? The time is short. He kept thinking, this is it, man. We're close. We're almost at the end. Of course, that was, what, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> but to him, it was like imminent. And are we to all live in that manner, that it is imminent? Yes. Um, but he leaves it up. So he really does leave the decision up to the individual. It's an individual choice. You marry or you don't, and it's all up to you. But it, whatever it is that you do, you do it in a manner which keeps God's commandments. So chapter 7, uh, basically keep God's commandments for the time is short. It's, it's about marriage and singleness. You can do as you choose. All right, that brings us up to chapter 8, where we're at now in our new segment. And chapter 8, 8, 9, and 10, we have one, a major key subject that kind of flows through it all. And what is the key word that's brought up? Uh, in one of them, but what is the major subject matter? What is your key repeated subject? Idolatry and idols, right. Now, he uses that subject as his catalyst for his message. I just want you to make sure you really understand that clearly idolatry is your major keyword and for us it would be the obvious thing to grab hold of for a title on this on this segment division about idolatry but beyond idolatry what is the underlying message in every chapter what did you see in chapter eight what was he telling your now it's your turn is it pat was that who gave that answer or was it martha who just gave that answer about the stumbling block you did go for it girl so in eight what does he tell us is the is the co the combat the the co the countermeasure to this problem of idolatry? That's right, but it's a it is exactly what you said, which is that don't let your liberty be a stumbling block right? That's what is, would you not say that in chapter 8 that's really his major message is that whatever it is that you choose to do. As a matter of fact, he goes into details about, um, uh, about the, the idolatry. And in, in this case, it seems like the question has to do with whether can they eat the meat that's been offered to idols. This was a big problem for them. 
They're living in a, t in a city in a situation where that's really true. Now, very interesting. I had a conversation yesterday with a young woman here at my church, a young woman. She's my age, young. <laughs> uh, but she, you know, she's struggling with um, the subject of alcohol and whether this is this great sin. And so I took her right back here to 1 Corinthians 8 and just walked her through it. And I said, it's, it in and of itself is not a sin. But when does it become a sin? When it becomes your idol. When it becomes a thing that leads your life or has a hold on you and it becomes more important than other things. And it also becomes a problem when, uh, in the use of it, you in any way um, bring humility or dis uh, fame to God's holy name right? As a Christian, you're to walk in the spirit, not in, not to be drunk with wine. So that is the, the counterbalance. So this was a real practical today um, subject that really fit with what 1 Corinthians 8 is talking about. So although he uses the subject of idolatry, is there a more broad message here for us, would you say? And the broader message is that whatever it is that you're doing, what are you not to do to a weak brother who's struggling with a particular subject or problem? Don't make him stumble. Just as he, I love the way he closes eight. The end of eight, what does he say in 13? Yeah, if, that, if that's going to be a stumbling block to anybody in my life or in the world that I live in, I will never eat meat again for their sake. Not that the meat is wrong. Because he said that back in, in verse 8. Will, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. Mock snicks, do whatever you want. You can eat it or not eat it. Because what is, it, what is the truth, the knowledge that you and I have about idols and idolatry? There are no such things as idols. Idols are not, they're made up things of the, of the mind of man. Why do men go to an idol rather than God? Why do you think that happens? Okay, maybe because they've lowered their expectations. That's really the one of the stronger messages, that's right out of Romans chapter 1. They've gone to worshiping what God created rather than the creator himself. Why do they do that? That's really what it comes down to. It's, the, it's their, their refusal to bow their knee to God. But if you refuse to, okay, and it could be lack of knowledge in some cases. People who are still seeking and don't have a knowledge of God at all, although there's probably few of them, but still, you're right about that. Because what, I what is it about humanity that really seems to be a draw for us? If we're not worshiping God, what will we do? We worship something. We put something in there. There is a big void in our life if we don't have that focus. What, what does a God do for a person? What is it that it gives to us? What is the benefit of us having God to worship? Yes, it does. Would you say in Christ Jesus we have purpose that we did, did not have outside of our faith walk? How many of you have 
remembrance in your life before coming to Christ of really kind of walking aimlessly in the world. You know, even though you functioned okay and maybe you did fine, but did you find yourself feeling empty and going, why am I here? You know, what is this all about? Yes. And so the need is deep, would you not say? That there's a deep need for us as human beings to have something to worship. So when we come to the knowledge of the truth of the one God that is the only true God, then when he fills that void for us, he gives us all that we need for life and godliness. He gives us that purpose and passion and understanding of who we are, why we were created, why we're even in this, why are we in this journey of sanctification as his children? What is that purpose for us? What is God's purpose for what we're going through right now in, in our lives? Ultimately, it's to draw us into close relationship, close fellowship. I think it's First John that talks about, about this fellowship uh, that God deeply desires. It was a broken thing from the Garden of Eden, and he's restored it through the Son Therefore, to conform us. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. All right. So here we have um, the idea of idolatry in chapter 8 is, therefore, don't let your liberty be a stumbling block to your brother. This is, and when you are not doing that, when you're not letting um, the things that you might want to do or that you feel you have the right to do or the privilege to do, and you have knowledge, there's no such thing as an I like and eat any meat I want, right? Is that not what scripture says? I can eat anything I want. I can drink anything I want. But what is it that is supposed to motivate us? He actually opens chapter 8 with this statement. What does he bring up as the, as the contrast to a person who would uh, walk in their own way and, and eat whatever they wanted to? What does he say? But love edifies. So it, do, would you agree that you're seeing that the undergirding of what's being stated in chapter 8 is although he's talking about the subject of idolatry it goes deeper than that it's about the relationship that you have with God and man and in that he's saying you all things are are allowed you it's you're not the better or the worse either way but but who who must you be concerned for the weaker brother. No, you are you are so right. And do you do you Yes, do you think that's what Paul is actually even saying in this letter? He's like, "Come on, you guys, grow up." Right? You've been walking as infants and babies and you're being mere men following mere men. Why are you doing this? Yeah. Uh, my mother had this happen in the early 50s, and she became a Christian. Uh, someone who was first an older person, a family person, and not very evangelist, left her in the Bible. No. <laughs> she took them off. You know, she said, you can't teach me God, but not be offended. So she put them up. And later she thought she 
No. Wow. Well, supposedly, <laughs> you know what's I think an interesting point in that conversation that you, that you just laid out too is sometimes just because a person is biologically older does not make them a more mature. And even if a person, e amen, and even if a person has been walking a long time in their faith does not also does not make them mature. What does make a person mature? Their wisdom in the word of God is their knowledge and like what Robert said, the fellowship, the fellowship that you've had with God, the fellowship that you have with Jesus Christ on a regular basis, it shows it's just like Moses when he would go into the tabernacle. Remember what would what would happen when he came out? He had this glow about him and as the people were so frightened by it. What did he have to do? Put the veil on, right? And Yes. Very good. Which is exactly what he says, right? He says knowledge makes arrogant, right? But love edifies. So even though it's really interesting, until you actually dig into these chapters, some of them on the surface can look like it's one thing, because I know when we did our overview and just went through it very quickly, right away we picked up on idolatry, and we thought the whole thing was going to be the subject of idolatry. Did it really teach us anything about the subject of idolatry in eight, other than subtle backdrop things? Other than flee from it, he doesn't really instruct us about idolatry. What does it instruct us on? How to treat a weaker brother, right? Okay, so in chapter 8 through 10, then, we could say that this is about that love edifies. Uh-huh. Right. Right. And this was, and this was the conversation I had with this woman that she and her husband have purchased a, 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 a piece of land and they're wanting to have ministry on this and dedicate it to the Lord. And her very first question it was to me was, so do I allow people to bring alcohol on the property? And so we kind of had to hash all that out. And we talked about the liberty you have, but are you going to be a stumbling block to the week? And if your outreach is for ministry, then there's always the potential that this is a major subject in our world. Uh, you know, alcoholism and drug abuse are huge, have been through every generation of history of man. So yeah, did I'm sorry, somebody had their hand up but I don't know who it was. Okay, all right, so that, that leaves us with love edifies, but to flee idolatry. And I put flee idolatry on there as the secondary part to that segment division to simply, um, as, a, as a kind of a, it's a symbolic subject of deeper things, right? It can be, you can put anything in there. You can say, uh, how about flee, how about we just say sin or evil? right? Or uh, selfishness. 
you can, you know, you can kind of substitute this for a myriad of other things. But the point is he uses the subject of idolatry because it's in their midst at that time. It's significant to that church in Corinth. And so he uses that subject to teach a, a systemic problem, a deeper root, rooted problem, which is fantastic for us because then it makes it applicable, right? So that was an eight. Do not let your liberty be a stumbling block to your brother. And then in nine, what does he do? Yeah, he uses him his own personal life as an example of how he lives sacrificially, right? Because he said, don't be a stumbling block. Remember that love edifies. And what does love do? Love is sacrificial. As a matter of fact, the first, the first use of a word in Scripture is generally its most clearly defined definition. Do you know where the first use of the word love is? It's in Genesis 22 when Abraham takes his son Isaac to... Uh, um, to sacrifice him at the command of God. And in that, as you read through it, you have to uh, use your, again, your inductive processes of pulling these things out. But what you see is it, it kind of comes down to two major things. Number one, love is sacrificial and love is also an act of obedience. Isn't that interesting? That's God's def definition of love. And so Jesus himself says, he who loves me, what? obeys me yeah or keeps my commandments so again you see that reiterated throughout all of scripture the first use of a word is its most clearly defined definition so if it says here that love edifies in this case what is the word edify to build up to strengthen right and so if it's love and what is love it's sacrificial and it's um and it's an act of obedience. And obedience to what? What subject has he, God brought up or Paul brought up throughout this? What are we to be obedient to? The, the, the commands of God, right? That's what he's been, okay. All right, so now we have laid our foundation. We are back, we're up to where we need to do. Chapter nine, he says, in, he uses himself as an example. And he says about himself, what? I'm an apostle, right? I have all kinds of rights, and he names them. Do I not have the right to do this and this? And I have rights in my work as an apostle. Um, and by the way, my rights come from where? So he's not just being arrogant in it, and he's not just saying, uh, uh, you know, something out of thin air. Well, I have the right to do that if I want to. No, he's saying, God says about the work that I do, I have the right if I am if I am bringing to you the word of God, if I am teaching you, if I am bringing you into faith, if I'm doing, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have the right to make a living from that. And he says it's written in God's law in the Old Testament. And guess who else reiterated it? Jesus himself. So he has real good strength behind it. He's saying, okay, so now I've established I have rights. But what? but I'm not going to exercise those. Why not? Yeah, isn't that amazing how he keeps saying that? Um, he kind of goes through in, in 15 to 18, I don't, I don't make full use of my rights. But then in 19 to 23, he says, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win some, right? Or save some. And then in 24 to 27, he, 
this is where we get this transition into chapter 10 too. He says, but about, about this, what is what is the danger for a Christian if they don't exercise by edification of the, that uh, loving a brother? If you're not loving others, what is the danger for us in this closing section? What could happen? Huh? You can be disqualified. Disqualified for what? Are you going to lose your salvation? Okay, explain it to me. Okay, so disqualified for them, maybe. What is he, actually, what has he said? What does he lay it out as? He, t- he makes a comparison. Yeah, that there's a prize. He says they do all, you know, he, he kind of makes a comparison to the, at the um, Olympics, right? Which are right there in that area. So it's all very understand. What is he doing? He's working for salvation. Yes. Well, he says, they do it to receive a wreath, but we what? Something that's imperishable. So it's not about the tangible, and it's not about the here and now, is it? So it's really not about the results of our work that you might be disqualified for. It's about something that's imperishable. What would be imperishable? Rewards and crowns. That well done, good and faithful servant that you desire to hear. Now, see, this is where you'd have to go into an additional side study about what is it that we are working for. He says up in verse 17, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. And then, but if I do it against my will, I actually have a stewardship that's been entrusted to me. So either way, he needs to do this, right? But he says there's a reward. Has he talked about rewards in 1 Corinthians to us already? What did he say about rewards in 1 Corinthians 3? Do you remember? That's right. Your works, whatever your works are, whatever your ministry is, whether it's spreading the gospel, which is what his ministry is, or whether it's serving, whether it's ministering to the hearts of people that are hurt and wounded, whether it's administration, whether whatever you're gifting, whether it's teaching, all those works that you do, they're going to go through a fire at the at this judgment seat of Christ that we haven't really discussed, but this Bema seat. And what remains once it's gone through the fire, what? You receive a reward. But you do not lose your life, even if all your works were burned. So again, your salvation is assured. So this is not talking about salvation. This is talking about a reward for your faithful service to God. Isn't it an amazing thing to you that God is going to actually reward us for serving him? That just blows me away. I mean, he, he gives us life. He promises us eternal glory. We are going to be in the presence of, of him forever and ever in a glorious place, heaven right? This new heaven and new earth that we look forward to one day. And along this journey, he not only gives us our salvation free, but he also endows us with spiritual gifts, equips us with the, with the skills and talents that we have, whatever they are for each of us, it's different. But th- then he empowers us by giving us the mind of Christ. He steers and guides us into the things that we are going to do. I mean, it's all him, But then guess what he does if you're faithful in it? He rewards you. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me. I just, I never stop being awed by the fact that he's going to give me a reward for doing something that really he's doing. It just. Yes. 
That's right. Right. And it, and, it, what, and it really, by looking at it from this perspective, too, it really does reveal to the fact that we have a, we have a choice. We can be faithful to God in this or not. And there are going to be some whose life and all their works will be burned up. They'll have nothing. Nothing. But they still have salvation. And believe me, they'll be plenty happy. However, there will be a sense of loss for not having the rewards, right? Personally, I tend to want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that if you're a believer, there'll be some kind of reward. Maybe. I've just, might, you just might. I'd probably be doing your laundry for you in heaven, but that's okay with me. <laughs> All right. But, you know, it's, and, and honestly, you, you kind of, there's kind of a danger in, in trying to get too wrapped up in the rewards because you don't want to be working for rewards. You really want to be working for his glory. And quite honestly, if you're not doing it for that reason, it's going to get burned up, <laughs> right? It has to be about relationship. It's kind of like what comes first, the horse or the, or the cart. Well, in our relationship with him, it has to be about the horse, who is G- Jesus in this case, and he's the driving thing. He's the one that pulls us along and guides us and directs us, gives us the things that we need, provides for us, gives us the lift when we need the lift, um, and we are to follow, but we have to be faithful, and there's a, re- there's a requirement in that. Covenant taught us that as well, that there's a sanctification work that we have a responsibility. And so Paul is showing us that here as you close out chapter 9. So here's what we want to say about chapter 9 then. He says in chapter 9, as a closing, hold on, let me find my other note here. Basically, you could be um, disqualified for a, a reward. Now, that, uh, even though I warned that there can be the danger of that becoming too prominent in your minds, but I can also say there's a danger of you not taking that seriously enough. The, the flip side to that would be a person who says, well, I'm just happy I'm saved. I don't care if I'm just the janitor. Well, I do care that I'm just the janitor. Why? Because my heart is for God. My heart is for his glory. My heart is that he get he get all the praise that he should from my life, right? And so if I'm not doing for him as he has done for me, he has given me of his spirit, I should be living fully to the, to the fullest measure in the way which will bring him glory. And so that's the thing. So here what Paul does at the close of nine is it gives them a warning that they could be disqualified if they're not keeping that in mind. So maybe they were people who were saying, oh, it's fine, I'm saved. Uh, It kind of makes me think of in Romans, well, so if it's all by grace, then I might as well sin all the more, right? And what does Paul say? May it never be, right? After all, Christ died for sins. He came to put an end to that in your life, to end the slavery of sin in your life. And so you have to understand that walking in righteousness is, your, is a choice. You should be guided by the Holy Spirit, but if you're not at least keeping your eye upon that as a goal, it's very easy to slip back into old habits and old ways because we still have this body of flesh and it tugs at us, Right? All right, so this is in 927 where he says that you could be qualified. And then you go on to 
chapter 10. So what we're trying to do today is look to see how does chapter 9 connect to chapter 10? What's the flow of thought where he insists that you could be disqualified for a reward? How does chapter 10 han handle this um, next part of this flow? If the thing is that we are, that we are in, um, that love is the, the undergirding of, of edifying the body, and we need to avoid the pitfalls that take us into evil or take us to cause a, a brother to stumble or any of those things. Now, what is he talking about in 10? What is the major subject in 10? There you go. Yeah. Very good. That that's a very pivotal uh, verse right there, that where he does say, "Therefore, take heed." Right? Because he who thinks he stands, who's the person who thinks that they stand? The example that he gives us in First Corinthians ten is about Israel and that nation. Right? Remember, they're called under a covenant that is distinctly different from our covenant in in faith, right? So we don't want to, we want to compare apples with apples, so we want to stick with our subject matter. N don't go off the rails, because one thing you have to remember is, once saved, always saved, that's a pillar, that's one of our pillars, right? Um, however, you can lose reward as a Christian. You can work for God, but lose the reward of it because you don't do it in a way that glorifies God, right, or for the right motives or intentions, according to chapter 9. Um, hold on a second. Let me get my notes here because I, I actually made a list on this. Um, so you can, and there's another principle in here that we're going to see as we look at these cross-references in chapter, that chapter 10 takes us to back into Numbers and Exodus and so forth. What is, what is also true about God and his relationship with his children? When they're disobedient, what will he do? He will discipline or judge, either one, right? And they, and they can be significantly different. In chapter 9, it seems like we're looking at kind of the, uh, uh, a warning of discipline that's more on the level of you might miss out on something, right, in the eternal perspective. But in chapter 10, he's saying you might what? You might actually die. So this takes us into that subject that comes up also in 1 John uh, chapter 5, that there's a sin that leads unto death. And then he talks about, well, there's a sin that doesn't lead unto death, but this is a sin that can, there is a sin that can lead unto death. And in this case, we've, we see here, he gives some examples of people who were, number one, in covenant with God, correct? Therefore, how were they identified in the world? They were God's people. In other words, they bore, those are the people of, of God Almighty, of Jehovah, of the Holy One of Israel, right? And so bearing that name. Now, make the comparison to us today. What do we bear? We carry the name of Jesus Christ. So he's talking to us, the collective church, and he's saying to the church, these are some principles you need to know about. Just as he said to Israel, the nation, these are some things you need to know about. Because you are my holy people, bearing my name in the world, 
I'm going to have to hold you accountable when you are stepping out of line. And so those are the things that we looked at this week. So let's do that together. What did you see in one to five? What was the, because this is, we're going to try to do our um, paragraphs here. One to five. What's going on there? What is, what is the first thing that he reveals to them as a truth, as a, as a pillar of truth that they're to understand? Pardon? Yeah, they all were under the sea. They were all in, and, cons- and in the conclusion of it, and verse 5, the nevertheless, I love these terms of conclusion. They are big. What does he say? Nevertheless, what? Most of them did not please the Lord. So let's, let's start with that right there. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting, the way he did this flow of thought, though, from chapter 9 to 10, where he, he, he kind of takes this from bad to worse, doesn't he? He says, well, you not only might miss out on rewards, but you actually could lose your life. There is a potential church, even though that is not God's first go-to thing. He doesn't do, obviously, or I'd be a gone long time ago. But, I mean, he's patient, right? And he, he works to, to bring us into the conformity that he wants. But what might be the line in the sand according to what we've looked at here? When might a person actually sin unto death? What kind of things were they doing? Yeah. And they're craving evil things. And as a matter of fact, when he uses that phrase, craving evil things, um, he says, now, these ha- things happened as examples for us. Now, what are the these things? What follows it, right? What follows it, which are what happened to them, right? And he said, these things happened as examples just so that we would not do what? Crave evil things. And so what are the evil things in their life that he's specifically talking about? What, what act did they commit? Oh, well, all of these, but the first one had to do with idolatry. So if you're going to define idolatry, you, you could say idolatry is uh, to crave evil things, right? And that's in verse 6. And he says up to us, do not be idolaters. In 7. And what did he say in 14? About idolatry. Flee it. Flee from idolatry. Idolatry. Okay, so he, he goes, in the example that he gives us, he, what I think is kind of interesting is, is he speaking to the Jewish nation? He's speaking to a church in Corinth. These are Greek-minded. These are what we would call Gentiles, right, just like us. So, and yet he has an expectation that they are to understand and know some of these things about their early roots. The roots of Christianity come right out of Judaism. You cannot separate the one. The, the Christianity is a fulfillment of the promises that were given to the Jewish nation. And so he says to them, he said, nevertheless, most of, uh, most of, with, 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And then what happened to them? Yeah. And they were laid low. So when you went into the cross-references on that, what did that mean, laid low? They were put to death. They were, they were, uh, their lives were taken, correct? Um, why? What does it say in 6 to 10? Why did that happen? Okay. Pardon? Yeah, they had craved evil things. That was the, these, as a matter of fact, and we can now see that the craving of evil things is also a reference to idolatry, among other things. Grumbling and what was the other's um, immorality, which we've addressed before. The immoral man, remove him from your midst. Why? Because he, just, he brings down the glory of God and his holy name from his people. If you're in the midst of God's holy people identifying with the, with the church and with the name of Jesus Christ, but you're living in immorality, what? How does that, how does that pan out as far as a witness to the world? Okay, oh, very good. Well, it was pretty obvious they had to have done something. Even with Aaron in Ex the, was it Exodus where we looked at Aaron? Oh, the calf jumped out. I know that was hysterical, <laughs> and yet if you read the details of what he did, he took it talked about him with his hands melting it and carving it, and I went, okay, that's the reality. But when he gave the report to Moses, it was a little bit washed over, wasn't it? I don't know what happened. It just came out. <laughs> we just threw him in, and there it appeared. What a supernatural thing. Absolutely. Oh, no. Whoa. I don't know where this came from. It, it just jumped out of the fire at us. I know. And Moses, of course, his response was, he was so angry. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So he, do you think he believed Aaron at all? <laughs> However, it's interesting to me that in the judgment of all of this, how did God handle, the, what was the difference between Aaron and the people in God's judgment of that? Yeah, that's Aaron, somehow God saw a lesser degree of sin for Aaron than he did for the people, although Aaron was also a part of it. He was apparently, maybe the mobs intimidated him into, you know, the situation. But this is where what you see is God discerns the heart. God, you know, he, he, he can penetrate to bone and marrow and intent of, and so forth. So often in scripture, you see things that, that God does or God says, and you're like, huh? What you have to do is almost, as an inductive student, reverse your thinking and saying, let me look at the result, what God did or what is said, and then I can ascertain how God viewed it. Rather than saying, now wait a minute, Aaron did that and the people did that, why didn't Aaron die too, right? But the answer is, well, how did God respond to Aaron? 
So apparently God saw his heart and saw something different in the, what he did versus what the people did. We can't explain it, but that's where you have the mystery. Well, I think he was using a general subject, and he was speaking to all of them. However, it's a good point that you bring up. When it comes to leadership, is there a higher degree of accountability generally with the leaders? There absolutely is. So... Well, certainly I do know that often he says in there, I'm speaking to the wise among you. I'm speaking to those of wisdom among you. So although they may or may not have been the leaders, he is speaking to those who've got the maturity to really grab hold of the, of the deeper truth of what he's saying. Certainly he is speaking to the leaders. Although from what I understand, the leaders... Who do you think came to him with this information? By the way, when we look at, at uh, ver verses 1 through 5, or chapters uh, 1 through 6, rather, how did Paul, how had Paul received this information? From, a, from them, right? These are things that Paul had heard. Yeah. Exactly. You're, uh, that's a really good point. But what we know is somebody of maturity saw what was going on, and the pastor himself was either unwilling or maybe even involved in some of it, who knows, and he was not willing to, to do the discipline that was necessary. And so they went directly to Paul wherever he was and presented these things, right? Yes. And that's something that I don't know that because we don't have an accountant how we responded to all of that. We still have to live with that. That idea that people died over this action is something that they continued. You know, you know, even though he was kept, there is something to that. Well, and here's another thing that we didn't really look at, and I did want to bring it up. Um, Moses and Aaron both were also disciplined by God. Neither of them were allowed to enter into the promised land. And do you remember why they weren't allowed? That's right. It says on here, he did not treat God as holy before the people. And so God did not allow him and Aaron to enter. And this is found, if you want to look at it, it's in Numbers 20, verse 12 and 24. And then, and that shows you the death of Aaron and how he's buried outside of the land. And then Deuteronomy 34, 4, and 5 shows Moses when he finally dies. God allows Moses to get close enough to see it, which is a great thing that he did for him. It was a privilege. But he didn't allow him because why not? Yeah. Well, he just, it basically came down to disobedience. Right. Right. No, I told you hit it once. Right. Well, and a lot of that is, again, how many times have you guys heard me say, do not mess with God's pictures? There so many things in our world have pictures, pictorial. Marriage is one of them. If you mess with the picture, you mess with the gospel, 
right? That if the husband and wife in marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, and it is, scripture tells us clearly it is. If you start marrying a man with a man or a woman with a woman, you mess with God's picture and you destroy it, right? You destroy the gospel message that God has in it. It also shows the leadership, uh, headship in the, in the church of Christ as the head, just as a man is over the wife. So the, all you're learning all these principles of God's doctrines, his truths, through these pictorial things. Well, striking the rock was another one. This was how many times was Jesus crucified? Once. Once for all. And the striking of the rock was pictorial of that, if you get into the research on that. Just like when we looked at, in here he says, they all drank from one spiritual rock who is? The rock was Christ. So again, there was, it's really interesting some of the additional little subtleties of insight that are always buried there and we don't always get to dig them out, but they're there. Don't mess with God's pictures. If God has a doctrine laid down in his word, it's for a reason. And often we, because of our shallowness of insight, um, we don't get them the, the fullness of what God is doing in it. Oh. Oh, that's so cool. And as I was sitting there, I thought, even what you just said there, if you struck the rock, why isn't it producing water now? Part of what you said, it's a picture, so wouldn't it be continuing? And as I walked away, even though it may or may not, I know, I know, we always go there. But, but they believe it is, and so what is God doing for them? Well, they're not Christian, and they're no. But what is the testimony of God in it? I mean, he's using something they believe it's that. It kind of goes back to, again, don't become a stumbling block to your brother. Sometimes God will allow things like that. And if people are somehow coming into faith because of it, or if it's a testimony, you know, to them about the gospel, he'll allow things like that to continue. Okay, 7 to 16. Now, so the first ones were things that Paul had heard. What happens in chapter 7 that switches um, for us so that we kind of know what we're tackling here. In 7.1, what did, what did he say? What's the clue as to what part of this we've run into or come into? The questions, yeah. Concerning the things about which they wrote. Okay, so that's in 7.1 specifically. So what we know then is our segment divisions of chapters 1 through 6 are the things that Paul had heard through these people coming to him. And starting in 7 all the way through 16, these are things about which they've written to him and asked him questions on. And what's interesting is through, as we've gone through this, he doesn't actually uh, directly give us the, the questions. He just answers them. So we have to make an assumption about what is the question, right? Um, so in chapter 10, he goes from be aware most of our fathers did not please God, right? And they were laid low. So it's another word. It's, it's, a, it's a warning, right? Be, don't be unaware. Um, there's other 
lots of scriptures where it talks about don't be unaware and don't be ignorant of this fact or that fact. And what, what he's really telling us is it's your responsibility to know some of these things. And he said uh, about these uh, fathers that they were all baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the, sp the same spiritual drink. What was he saying in all that? Okay. Yes. They're, you're close, though. You're, that's exactly right. The idea of covenant is certainly there because they all did enter into one covenant, right? Which makes them one as a people. It makes them one under the name identity that God gives them, right? And also, it makes them one in fellowship and one in unity. Now, this idea of fellowship and, and eating at, uh, of the same tables and so forth, he brings that up again later, doesn't he? When it, in verses 14 to 22, what does he say about it in 14 to 22? I forgot to put the title on these other ones. Yeah. I forgot to put the title. So the title of 6 to 10, to 10 had to do with that they were destroyed for as an example for us. Now, how do you learn from an example? What must you and I be aware of? What the example is, right? We have to go back and learn what it is that he's written, which means, again, you're back to the word of God. That's the, that's the, the core that you and I have to have hold of. In 11 to 13, let's go back to that one first. And why did he say these things were written? Mm, yep. Were written for what? Mm-hmm. Were written for our instruction. And then he gives a warning. Take heed. Right? Um, so he gives a warning, but then he also follows it in ver after the, the warning of taking heed that you don't fall. Then what does he say in 13? What's the exhortation? Yeah, because God is what? God is faithful, and he's faithful, and he's saying, look, these temptations that you guys are enduring, because these are practical things for them. There really are, there really is idolatry in their world. Just like in our world, there's all kinds of temptations for you and I to be drawn away from God. Give me some, give me some definitions of what you think idolatry is. Oh, yeah, greed. That was... Um, Uh, was that Colossians 3, I think 4 to 6, something like that. It was close, something along those lines. I'd almost forgotten about that one, yeah. So Colossians, greed is one example of what it is. If you go back and look at what we've seen in chapter 8, 9, and 10, if you want to look at, at 
exposing what idolatry really is just from looking at what he's presented in these three chapters on this subject what does it really boil down to do you think chapter eight you know letting your liberty become a stumbling block uh, wounding a weak brother's conscience not living sacrificially for the good of another that's just an eight in nine, demanding my own rights because I have knowledge that it's fine. And I don't care that you don't know that, but I'm just going to do what I feel like I'm deserving of. Um, I don't care what the effect is on my ministry or its effectiveness. I just want what I have the right for. Um, how about living without regard to eternity either? God's design purpose in that chapter nine. In chapter 10... Here he's saying, I'm telling you, take heed. These things are written. So if I don't take heed, right, I don't care what displeases God. I'm not interested in in studying or reading God's warnings and the things. Some of those are tough. You and I have done a lot of Kings of Prophets the last couple of years. And those have been really tough books to get through because they're a little bit dry. But are there valuable lessons in what we saw reading and studying those kings. I can't tell you how much that has helped me in so many other areas as I've done additional studies. So on the whole, what do you think idolatry kind of boils down to? Me. It's all about me. It's all about selfishness. Yes. And I think that's important too that we can make an idol out of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it can be putting me above other things and or the other definition. Let's let's consider the 10 commandments. What is the 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 first commandment of God? Have no other gods before me. So what what by definition could be idolatry? Anything that takes God, putting me above God, anything, or, or putting anything above God. Okay, putting, um, let me see if I, I was almost done with it. If I take my, if I am living my life, my life for me and for, for my own selfish desires, whatever this, or putting anything else. One of the other things I had in this conversation yesterday was the idea that sometimes even things that we really love, like our children, our families, or um, jobs, which are important, but any of those kind of things can become a God to us. They can become, take the place of God, the worship of God. When we start caring more about them than we do about the honor and the holiness of God's name and the work of God in in this world and 
and the, the edification of others for the purpose of drawing them into faith or drawing them closer to God in their walk with God. Any of those things can become idolatry to us. So idolatry, although it's used in these three chapters, it's really just that, that again, it's that um, symbolic subject that kind of covers a multitude of things, right? It can, it can be tons of different things. Um, Exodus, I, did anybody do a word study on idolatry since it was amongst our work this week? No? I thought this, it was pretty interesting. Part of it was, part of it was obvious, but some of it was interesting. I hadn't considered it. Okay, the first one I bet you can guess. What do you think idolatry is by definition of, in the original language? Yeah, it, oh, having a graven image and doing what with it? Worshiping it. So it's to worship anything that's a false god or an, a, an image of, of there of it. Okay, so the worship of false gods. And it can have anything to do with the imagery of it. But the second part of it was very interesting. That was one. The other part of it was this. Did anybody actually look it up? I want to give you a chance before. Oh, you looked it up and you lost it. That's I the do Robert. Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. Well, you guys are excused. The dog ate mine, right? How many of you have dogs? Lois, you're off the hook. You've got a dog. <laughs> or two, right? All right. Well, here's the, here's the other one. You know, I do know it wasn't in your homework. But again, I'm just encouraging you guys, anytime you have a chance to do word studies, and this was an obvious one, right? Um, this one should have been a word study for you. And it was interesting in light of what we're looking at here from taking it from just this one subject into a, into a deeper application so that it really fits for you and I, because we don't really have the form of idolatry that the Corinthians did. There were no God worships in town, and they're not sacrificing meat to the gods and then bringing it to our our you know, grocery stores for us to purchase. That's not the kind of thing that we're battling. But we are battling idolatry. And by definition, this is what the second part says. It says in the plural, meaning don't, don't have any other gods before me. It says it's the vices springing up from idolatry and peculiar to it. Isn't that interesting? So it's anything that's related to it in some fashion, and those things, it's the vices that it can bring. So that actually explains this one, greed. Because if the systemic thing is putting anything else above or before God, and it's putting me, because remember, Satan's fall, what was, what was ultimately the issue with Satan's fall? What made him fall? He wanted to be God. It was his pride, putting him above God. I shall ascend to the heavens. I shall sit upon the throne, right? So he's wanting to exalt himself over God and be in the position of God himself, even to put himself upon the throne. So anything that's putting me or my desires or anything else above God or before God is idolatry. And in this definition, it says it's the vices that spring up from that. I thought that was really interesting. 
Well, I have several, um, although I think this one actually came from Strong's, but I have a Strong's, um, it's, a, it's an enhanced something, and it's on my, my Lagos Bible program that, pre that I got through the Lagos people. I love my Bible program. It's really fit. And the other thing I have as an advantage is in my, in my library on my, in my library on my computer program, it has like four or five, six maybe uh, word studies that I can go into. So I almost always start with, I always start with vines. That's where it starts you. And then I go into uh, the dictionary of biblical languages, and then I go into the English-Greek lexicon, and then I can go down into other things, too. The, there's one that's a lo, loma, loa, something, I can't remember who they are, but uh, there's others I can do, but usually those first three are the ones that I use, and they are, so in totality, I get this bigger, better picture, but I think this one actually came from that expanded Strong's, but I don't know. No, the English Greek lexicon is a is like Strong's. It's a word study. Okay. The other is a commentary. Um, probably. I don't know why you wouldn't be. Yeah, no, that's okay. This is all part of the process. You know what? My my heart in teaching is not just to get through the curriculum, but it's to teach you guys your how to do your method because I am, I am equipping you to be able to do this without me or anyone else. I want you to be able to stand on your own. If God calls you out into the mission field, if God calls you on the spot in a situation in your family or home or church or whatever, I want you to have the tools in your brain, you know how to do this, how to get there. Yeah, well. So it will show you what the number is, what the word is for the specific English word that you were looking for, so that you know. You right. right, you got the right one. Yeah. And when you hit that, you'll get the definitions as well as other citations that use the same word. That's so fun when they give you the cross references. I love that. Yeah, it's a little, no, it's not cheating. It's, there's no cheating when you do the homework. It's all about finding the right thing to click. <laughs> That's all it is. Just click it and get there. Because in the end, you're getting the information. That's all that matters. And we want you to be informed. Because Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. And she can look through it and see if it's something that she's already sent out. She knows what she's doing. Okay, good. Yeah, send them to me and then and send them to Lois, and we'll make sure everybody has. They thank you. It's a co it's a collective, you know, effort. And sometimes you find things that other people don't. I know my friend Celeste. She is great at going online and finding places that I never would find. Okay, so by definition, so this is what's really cool. Now we have clearly defined what idolatry is. Application to us is so clear that in the end, all, all you're talking about is 
anything that's going to set itself up against or above God in your life. And that can, that can be a multitude of things. Family, jobs, it can be position, it can be power, it can be um, reputation, it can be, you know, just anything. Any kind of sin, pretty much, it would be, can become an idol, right? All right, so uh, this was interesting. Now, we, get, we move on to 14 to 22. There are 15 to, wait a minute, second, let me get wrong, wrong page, hold on. It is, 14 to 22. I started with the word therefore. Now, Kay had it broken down differently. She actually put the 14 in the previous paragraph, and I don't know why, because a therefore begins a thought, and, and it concludes what's been previous to it, and, and it begins another thought. So I put 14 into the next part. And what is the very first thing he says in 14? What is it that his, his thrust is here at this point? Flee from idolatry. That's the command. You are to flee from idolatry. When I was really young in my faith, I remember one of my scripture verses was out of Psalm 119, and this is how, how um, about teaching a young man how he should go in, in the way that he should go. Um, and, he, and he says, but he, you are to teach him to flee from sin. That is the one, one of those principles about life in general that God says is a good thing for you to understand, that don't test the Lord, and don't see if you can handle it. But anytime you are in a situation where it is sin before you, and it's an obvious thing that God has not actually called you there, assume it's a test and flee, <laughs> okay? He says, flee from idolatry, but why would he say why would he say that? What happens to those who don't flee from idolatry? What happens to them? They get sucked in. That's it. Did you notice the key repeated word in this particular paragraph? What was the most key repeated word in 14 to 22? Besides idolatry itself. Idolatry and demons was, was your key word. Yeah, and he says it. And what are we doing concerning that table that we sit at? It's a what? What's the key word? Sharing. Did you see that in verse 16? It's twice. It's a sharing and it's a sharing. In 18, we are sharers in. And in 20, it's we are sharers in. What is the word sharers? There you go. Do not become sharers. Um, I'll just put in demons because that's kind of the way it's stated there in in that particular pa passage. Because the con the conversation here is is look, if you don't flee, there is the strong possibility that you are going to get sucked in. There's a another passage in First Corinthians. I think it's fifteen thirty three that says. Bad company does what? Corrupts good morals. You know, often we think we can handle it, but God knows better. And not only that, but if you're in companionship alone, have you already failed? If you've stayed and, st and remained in that relationship, you know, if somebody has dragged you along, now this is going to be an obvious one. If you get dragged along and you end up in a strip club or something, right? What is the, I mean, we're not going to do that, but, but the obvious thing is to do what? 
turn around and walk out the door and go home. It's not that hard, right? Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah. Somebody needs to rebuke him, and he needs to come to a place of repentance and be. But you were not it, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and I think there's wisdom in knowing that, too. And that's a little subtlety off of this conversation. But th- there's also a time in our pl- in a, in our faith walk with God, we know things that God has given to us and things that he doesn't. So you have to learn to discern, are you the one God is calling for this particular assignment, whatever it is? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. That's right. That's a good example of of that being something that you've thought through and planned ahead for. And if you're working with teenagers, that's a big one, right? Oh, funny, should it memorized. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, so flee from idolatry. The obvious thing is why flee from idolatry? Don't become sharers and demons because you you could get sucked in. And and he's literally saying sharers are the, I wanted to define sharers for you because this was interesting. Um, sharers is number 2844. It means a partner, an associate, um, comrade, companion, a sharer in anything, those brought into fellowship with them. One who participates with another in some enterprise or matter of joint concern. Now, I think that one's very interesting, too, because that one seems a little more deliberate, like you have come together, you've reasoned together that you're both on the same page and you're working toward the same goal together. You've actually not just been brought into it and brought along basically for the ride and kind of have been carried along with it, but rather it's you have engaged in it for a design purpose and you're, you are equally engaging in a common goal or effort. So that's the idea of being a sharer. So if you're not to be a sharer with the table of demons, because you are sharing what table? What's the contrast for us? Yeah, ours is the table of the Lord. And when they sacrifice, who do they sacrifice to in verse 20? To the demons. And we, but they do not sacrifice to who? God. Uh, so, and he says, so you and I, we share in the blood and the body of Christ, but they, they share in demons and we do not want to be a part of that. We are not in union with them. We're not an associate of them. We're not in fellowship with them on on that. We are in fellowship through Jesus Christ. Okay. So now let's go. We're almost at the end of this. Let's go to, uh, 23 to 30. What does he say? 
I love this one. This is the one that kind of, remember I told you there are bookends. He opens in 8-1, and then he kind of closes at the end of, of chapter 10 as he brings this subject to an end. What does he say in this particular segment? That's right. All things are lawful, but they're sure not all profitable, right? And although it, there, it, there is no, this is what I was saying to this, this friend, it, it's not a sin to have alcohol, but it isn't always profitable to have alcohol either. And if it's going to cause your brother or your sister to stumble, or if it's going to cause you to fellowship with demons, so to speak, joining in with them in debauchery and, and carrying on and drunkenness, then you have become a participant with them, a partaker with them, a fellowshipper with them, and now you have joined in at the table of demons. All you have to do is make that, that subtlety of, of not being clear about what is a righteous thing and what is not a righteous thing, what is profitable and what's not profitable. And this goes all the way back to Leviticus where he said, you are to discern the clean from the unclean. That's why he gave them the simple task of just deciding these are things God has called clean and these are things God has called unclean. I have to have a knowledge of what God says is clean and unclean. He says, beware, take heed, be, be aware. I don't want you to be unaware of these things. These things are written for our encouragement, written for our instruction. You need to know what they are. And once you know what, what, what God has said, then when things are presented to you, you have to weigh which one is it, the clean or the unclean. Is it, is it good or is it not good? And that is exactly where we're at in 23. So all things are lawful, but... There you go. But not all things edify. Pardon? That is it. That's it. It's to edify. Or or to seek the do not all things um uh are for the good of your neighbor. That's another thing you might the good of the good of your neighbor. You might want to put that in. Because that is what love is. It's about sacrificially loving others more than yourself, not being in idolatry, putting yourself above, above God and God's plan, but rather seeking the good of others. So you live your life sacrificially. You live yourself as, in holiness before God with God as the goal, which takes us then to 31 to 33, which is exactly how he closes it. And what does he say there? There you go. And do what? And what else? Do no offense. Or give no offense, right? To anyone. That's right, which goes back to no stumbling block. Isn't that amazing how this all just knits together? And this is how you know this is all one segment division. So I want to, actually, I need to look that up. Give no offense. You guys might want to do that too. Look up that word offense. I didn't do that one. Very good. I don't think I did that, that one. Provoking the Lord into jealousy. Temptation. No, I didn't do offense, so I'll have to go and look that one up. Very good.
So although we did not get to go in deeply into all those beautiful cross-references, all the, that was cool, but those in and of themselves are a whole study, right? I mean, you, we could spend hours talking about Moses and the people in the wilderness and what God did there. And, but the lesson that we learned by looking at those is the fact that it boils down to obedience to God and living sac your life sacrificially, right? 